Christmas confronts each one of us with a question. And it's a question that doesn't wait until December 25th for an answer. In fact, this question stares at you and I this morning. And the question is this, why did Jesus come to earth? Uh, What's the reason behind the story of the miraculous birth? Born of a virgin, born in a manger, born to a lowly and young couple in the middle of nowhere. Your experience of this Christmas season will be marked by how you answer that question. In fact, not only your experience this Christmas season, every bit of your life will be shaped by how you answer this question. Why did Jesus come? That, the answer to that question is meant to shape your marriage and your work and your relationships, and your leisure, and your thinking, and your emotions. It's meant to shape everything about you. Why did Jesus come? There's much at stake today in how you answer that question. And so I invite you to seriously consider what your answer is. And over the next four Sundays, that's what we are going to consider. Not merely what we think is the reason that Jesus came, but to hear from Jesus himself. And so in the sermon series that we've entitled, In His Own Words, we are drawing our ears near to the pages of Scripture so as to hear Jesus' answer to that. We want to hear from Jesus in answer to the question, why did he come? Uh, This is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a Latin word. Uh, It means the arrival or the coming. And for about 600 to 800 years throughout church history, Advent was tied primarily to the return of Christ. But around the Middle Ages, we find Christians beginning to link Advent season to that first coming of Christ. And the reason that the link was made was because of the similarities of God's people then as they waited for him to come and God's people today as they wait for him to return. And that's the intent of Advent. That's why we pause almost every year and walk through four Sundays of sermons that's meant to encourage our hearts to just remember the angst that's found in waiting to remember what it must have been like for the people of God with with promises from God, waiting for him to fulfill those. And in many ways, we find ourselves in similar shoes today. Even as we think about the darkness of the world without Christ, and we think about the darkness of our world today marked with sin, And the goal is that we would anticipate, that we would yearn, that we would long for the coming of Jesus. David Mathis, a pastor in Minnesota, 
commented on Advent season in this way. He said, one vital aspect and offering of this season that's often missed today is this. Advent is a season of waiting. God's people of old had promises of the coming Messiah who would rescue them, and for centuries they waited. And as we wait this Advent season, we replay the centuries of longing and yearning that preceded the coming of Christ, and in doing so, our joy and our gratitude for what we have in Christ ought to deepen. It ought to be enriched. It ought to be sweetened. And we too live with a longing and a yearning for Jesus' second coming. coming. Even as we are waiting now, our waiting takes on a fundamentally new shape because of His first coming. And on Christmas Day, all of the minor chords of waiting that has marked Advent gives way to the major chords of joy. And so we are able to sing joy to the world. O come, O come, Emmanuel gives way to joy to the world. And so you and I run the risk of missing this of having this Christmas season be all about gifts and parties and busyness. All the while missing an opportunity to have our hearts draw near, to reflect on the first coming and to long for the second coming of our good King. And so I just want to pray that the sermon today would help us start Advent off on the right foot. And that we would continue, not merely on Sundays, but even day to day in our homes, personally. That we would lean in and find our hearts longing for more of Jesus. So let's pray. Our holy God, we come to you and we are in desperate need of your help this season. There is much that's vying for our attention and our affection and we want to hear from you. We want to be so enthralled with you. And so would you help us be centered upon Christ? We pray that the sermons that we will preach over these next few weeks will serve our souls. And we pray that our celebrations of this season will be marked by a deep joy because of the coming of Christ. And so for that, we say thank you. And for these next few moments, we ask for your help as we approach your word. Give us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one in front of you. John chapter 18, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John be the fourth book in the New Testament. We find ourselves in chapter 18. That's the larger numbers at the top of those pages. The smaller numbers will be the verses. We're in verses 33 through 38. And when we talk about Christmas, we usually think about the first chapters in those gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those tell us some of the, either the birth narratives or the the perspective from all of eternity past in the Gospel of John. But this morning, we find ourselves in John chapter 18, only a few hours away from the death of Jesus. 
And it's in this moment, in this passage, that Jesus gives us an explicit reference as to why he was born, why he had come. He speaks several times often. We will hear him say over the next few weeks, I have come for this. I have come to do this. I have come to bring this. But in this passage and in this passage alone, in all of the Gospels, Jesus gives explicit reference and says, this is the reason that I was born. And so before we jump into this chapter, I think it may be helpful to be reminded of one of the major storylines that runs throughout the Bible. Uh, One of the major storylines, it runs from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, is this coming of a king. The coming of a king who will reign eternally. He will have a throne and the rule will have no end. His reign and his rule will have no end. This theme really sets the stage for what is happening in our passage this morning, John chapter 18. In Genesis chapter 49, right before his death, Jacob calls all of his sons around him and he gives his sons a blessing. And in that blessing, there's something that that he says. Jacob creates this expectation that there's going to be a king from Israel who's going to have a worldwide kingdom. What he he says in Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 is that there will be a scepter that shall not depart from Judah. You begin to think there's this expectation of a king who will come. If you were to keep reading, one of the next prominent places that this appears is in Numbers chapter 24. God's people have had a false prophet, this sorcerer, has been hired to speak against the people of God. And this false, uh, this sorcerer, this false prophet, his name was Balaam. And Balaam stands up in one of his final prophecies against the people of God. Uh, what was interesting is Balaam was hired to, be, to speak falsely against God's people, and God chooses to use this sorcerer to speak truth to God's people. And one of the last prophecies that Balaam gives in, num- in, gives in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, he says, A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel. And then we find Moses and Joshua are leading God's people. They lead them to and into the promised land, but they aren't kings. And various judges are raised up to deliver God's people from foreign powers, people like Gideon and Samson. But these men aren't kings, they're judges. In fact, the book of Judges ends by making this statement. And there was no king among the people. Israel finally gets their king and king, uh, first they get uh, King Saul, then they get King David. And you begin to think, wait a minute, David seems to be this good king who would be the fulfillment of the promise that came in Genesis and in Numbers. He's from the tribe of Judah. He has great military success. And yet in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, we read, God makes a covenant with David. And in this covenant, this is what he says, When your days are fulfilled that you must go out to be with your fathers, I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be 
of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. And you look down in verse 14, I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And so the, the thought that maybe David was this king, God makes a covenant with David and says, you're not that king. There's one who's going to come from David who will be that king. And that one will rule forever over an eternal kingdom. Who is this king? In the Old Testament, is just it's soaked with anticipation. Where is the king? And we open the gospel accounts. And in the first chapter of the gospel that we're in this morning, we hear Nathaniel, a devout Jew, calling Jesus of Nazareth. This is the king of Israel. And the question that's on every listener and reader's mind is, is this the promised king? Is Jesus the promised king? And it's interesting because that's the same question that Pilate, the most powerful man at the time in this province, that's the question that he asks. Jesus had been with his disciples in the city in the upper room. He shares the Passover meal. We know that is the Last Supper. After the meal, they go out together to a special place, a place where Jesus would often go away and pray, the Garden of Gethsemane. After this 20-minute walk outside of the city, Jesus begins to pray. The disciples fall asleep, and it's here that Judas betrays Jesus by handing him over to this cohort of Roman soldiers who then escort him back into the city and they bring Jesus before the high priest. Jesus goes to Annas and then he goes to Caiaphas and then they, they bring Jesus to the Roman governor himself, Pilate. Pilate would have been in town because of the religious festival, the Passover feast that's taking place. Jesus is brought before the highest ranking official, the governor over all of Judea. And, and what a moment this is. You and I, uh, we're jumping into the end of the Gospel of John, but we can't miss the powerful moment that's taking place in our passage today. These two men standing, looking at each other, one of them, the most powerful man in the reigning earthly kingdom. The Roman Empire was well on its way to dominating all of the Mediterranean world. And the man who held all of the power standing in this room. And he's eye to eye, face to face with Jesus. Jesus knew this man in a way that Pilate would have never known himself. Pilate is in the presence of one whom, like whom he has never been in the presence of. And Pilate has no clue what to do with Jesus. Pilate is bothered, he's impatient, and he asks Jesus a question. His hope is to learn from Jesus why it is that the Jews, his own people, Jesus' people have turned him in. Why do they want him dead? And this morning, we're going to look at three questions and two answers to make our way through these few verses. And Pilate begins with the first question. And the first question is this, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Look again in verses 33 through 35. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium, and he summoned Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative? 
Or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me, so what have you done? Pilate comes into his governor's quarters. He calls Jesus into those quarters, and he asks him this question. The Jews have brought Jesus to Pilate because they want Pilate to give the ruling that Jesus should be executed. And if Jesus answers yes to this question about being a king of the Jews, then he would be guilty of insurrection. Pilate has been charged with making sure that no one threatens the power of Rome. And if you have a Jew who's saying, yes, I'm the king and these are my people, that would have been seen as a threat to the power and the reign and the rule of Roman authority. But Jesus doesn't respond with a mere yes or no. Jesus responds with a question himself. Pilate, why do you want to know this? Is this a yearning, a, a genuine consideration that you have? Or are you just parroting what you've heard others say? The African Bible commentary is helpful here says that he's encouraging Pilate to reflect on what he has just said. Did Pilate believe this? And if he did, then he's on the right track. But we see Pilate quickly brushes the conversation into another direction. Pilate says, uh, am I a Jew? Meaning, it doesn't matter to me whether you're the king of the Jews. I'm not a Jew. It's your people who have a problem with you. So just tell me, what have you done? And Jesus responds in verse 34. Matthew, Mark, Luke... They all record the reply of Jesus with an affirmative. Sorry, verse 36. All replies with this affirmative. And what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't, Jesus makes clear here that the prisoner in this story is becoming the judge. And Jesus has a concern for the soul of Pilate. Jesus says, is this a true interest in your heart? He has a longing. Is this a longing that you have? Jesus knows the answer to these questions that Pilate's asking but it's an invitation for Pilate to consider the things of eternity. Why do you want to know? And what do you want to know? And I believe that same invitation that Jesus is giving Pilate and allowing him to consider further the questions that he's asking, is the, it's the same invitation that's before you and I this morning. What do you say 
about Jesus. Who do you say that Jesus is? And so if the first question that Pilate asks is, are you the king of the Jews? We see in verse 36 the first answer. The first answer. And this is where Jesus responds, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And so what Jesus is doing is he's indirectly affirming that he's the king, but he does it in a way to make sure that Pilate knows that his kingdom is no threat to the Roman Empire. And so the pilot's goal was to seek to sort of catch and capture Jesus in this story where Jesus would be charged with insurrection. And Jesus says, I do have a kingdom, but my kingdom is no threat to yours. My kingdom is not of this world. In fact, if you were to go back to those moments in the Garden of Gethsemane when this Roman cohort came, to take Jesus away. We find one of Jesus' servants taking his sword and cutting off one of the ears of this Roman cohort. And Jesus would have been able at this point to say, and Pilate, it was I who healed your guy. And it was I who looked at my guy and said, put the sword away. This is not how things are done in my kingdom. My kingdom is not from here. And the power that wins today in the kingdom that Jesus is over is not one of the sword. It's one of truth. His kingdom will not come through the power of the sword. It will come through the power of truth. And what Jesus isn't saying by my kingdom is not of this world is that his king, he's not saying that his kingdom makes no difference in this world. No, he's saying his kingdom is greater than this world. It's beyond all worldly powers and includes more than merely the visible realm. And those who are servants in his kingdom, they operate much differently from servants of earthly kingdoms. You see, earthly servants take up arms in order to protect their kings. But this king needs no protection. In fact, we will come to see that this king is the one who takes up the cause to protect his servants. John Calvin is helpful here. He says, the the depravity of this world... The sinfulness of this world causes Christ's kingdom to be established more by the blood of martyrs than by the force of armies. And so Jesus has just answered this first question, are you the king of the Jews? And his answer is clear. I am a king, but my kingdom is different because I'm altogether a different kind of king. And that leads then to the second question. The second question we see in verse 37. Pilate then responds back to him, so are you a king? And so 
We see Pilate's question. First, are you the king of the Jews? Now, beginning to, to broaden back, Jesus answered, but he wasn't, he wasn't super clear. So Pilate just wants to know, okay, then are you a king? Pilate understands just a little. He's beginning to trek a little bit. Jesus has referenced the kingdom, so Pilate probes a little bit harder. So then are you a king? And Jesus prepares to answer this question. And earlier, he answered the question, are you the king of the Jews, in a negative term. He says, my kingdom is not like this. And here he's going to answer Pilate's question in positive terms. This is what my kingdom is. Look again at verse 37. Jesus answered correctly. Or Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so Jesus says, when Jesus says, you have or you say that I am king, perhaps your translation reads that. You say that I am king. The New American Standard rightly captures the sentiment. He's not saying, Pilate, let me just tell you what you said. Jesus is making a statement of value. You are correct in what you say. You are right in what you have said. And then Jesus spells out why it is that he has been born. Again, the only time in the Gospels that we read Jesus saying, for this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And so the answer to the question that we posed at the beginning, why did Jesus come? He answers here. He was born and he has come that he might bear witness to the truth. And, and even those two phrases, I was born, for this reason I was born and for this reason I have come. And in both of those phrases, we capture both the humanity of Jesus, he was born, but also the divinity of Jesus. He has come, meaning he left from somewhere and came. He was carried in a virgin's womb, though conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was indeed born humanly. But he also came. Before he came in the likeness of man, the Son of God existed in the form of God. And if you just are thinking, man, I want something to consider and think about. Just think about the incarnation. God the Son taking on flesh. Philippians chapter 2 may serve you to consider that truth. He had always been with God. He's always been God. One God, three persons, and yet he came to dwell among us. And he came for a purpose. Why? 
to testify to the truth, to bear witness to the truth. And as I think about this, I think, okay, what is the truth? Why did he need to come to bear witness to the truth? And how do we respond to that? And so what is the truth? When Jesus says, I have come to testify and to bear witness to the truth, what is the truth? And what we find throughout the Gospel of John is that the truth is nothing less than the self-disclosure of who God is and what God is doing. That's truth. We even find Jesus answering and saying in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The truth is that which is concerning the king's good reign. It's that which is concerning man's relationship with him as the good king. God is a rescuing, loving, forgiving, saving king. And it's that truth that Jesus came to bear witness to, to testify to, to make clear of. What is the truth? The truth about God, man, sin, Jesus, forgiveness that's been provided by God through the person of Jesus. If you were just to read the Gospel of John, that's the truth that keeps churning up again and again and again. Is that there's this way of the world that seems right to a man, but there's a truth from God. And it can, it, it, the truth literally, it centers on who God is and what he is doing in all of the world, what, he's, what he was doing before the foundations of the world, what he will do as we learned about last week. When this world gives way in the new heavens and the new earth, there is this from before the foundations of the world to after this world is gone in new heavens and new earth, there is this God who is reigning, who's worthy of worship, who will be declaring his worth. And those who are in Christ, those who are his followers, will be able to forever reign and find fellow and have fellowship and find joy in this God. And yet all of the hope for all of that goodness from eternity past into eternity future, we look around and we say, that is not our experience. And because it's not our experience, God in great mercy sent his son to bear witness to that truth. Saying, if you spend however many years of this life that he gives you, if you spend them on things and miss the truth, you've wasted your life. Don't miss the truth. And really, I hope you see the incarnation, the birth of Christ as a kind of, of it's, a, it's a loving act of mercy and grace that God would send Jesus so that you and I wouldn't miss it. Don't miss it. There is a truth that is the truth. It doesn't matter, students, what your professors are saying. It doesn't matter, adults, what your coworkers or neighbors are saying. 
When you hear, yeah, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. No, there is a, there is the truth. Jesus has come to bear witness to it. And you and I must submit to it. We must. Not your own experience and your own conclusions. There is a truth outside of you that is unchanging, that's always and forever. And that truth gives us understanding to the meaning of this life and to the meaning of our God. You say, okay, maybe I see there's a truth and Jesus has come to bear witness to the truth. But do we need him to come to bear witness to the truth? And I would just say, think about what man has done with the truth. We've talked about the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of John's gospel. Go to the beginning of the Bible, to the Garden of Eden. When God himself gave Adam and Eve truth... And there becomes this unwanted visitor in the garden. And what does that unwanted visitor do? He begins to question the truth. Causes Adam and Eve to question the truth. And sadly, since they began to question the truth, everyone born in Adam's lineage has likewise done the same but not merely questioned the truth, rejected the truth. In fact, from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 6, in Genesis chapter 6, we read that it had gotten so bad that God says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God preserves Noah and his family, and not long after, man is again throwing off God's good reign and the truth and seeking to build their own kingdom. And God raises up a man named Abraham, and through Abraham's line, God is going to bless all the nations. And what we find is that as man waits for God to bring that blessing, man is continually denying and rejecting the truth. In fact, Romans chapter 1, Paul makes this really clear. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, the men, uh, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And so Paul writes in 18 through 21, and essentially, or 18 through 20, and says, There is no human who has no excuse to stand before God and say, I did not know. That God has made that clear through his creation. Verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and in their foolish heart, and their foolish heart was darkened. And so what do they do? Verse 23, or 22, professing to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Since Adam and Eve, man has not wanted truth. Man has wanted to be the author of truth. Man has wanted to be the determiner of truth. Man has not wanted to submit to God's truth. And yet there's something in man that will not allow a truthless void to open up. Man will constantly seek to fill that truth with lies. Truth then is questioned, it's suppressed, it's exchanged. And Scripture laments this over and over. Psalm 5, there's no truth in their mouth. Isaiah 59, truth is lacking among God's people. Jeremiah chapter 7, the truth has perished. All the while, man ends up living in deception. And you and I know this because we all want to be Autonomous. We all want to have that governing ability to say this is true and this isn't true and I will decide what's true and I will decide what to do, whether that's over our behavior, our sexual choices, our beliefs. And here's the deal, we've made a mess with truth. But God is not uninvolved. And that's the hope of Christmas is that he didn't, he wasn't uninvolved going, you have blown it. At the right time, he sent forth his son. So out of great love for humanity, God sent his son to do what? To bear witness to the truth. To overwhelmingly convince people who were rejecting truth that there was truth that was good. This is why he has come, John 14, 6. No one's coming to the Father except through him because he is truth. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And he says, John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus Christ has come to bear witness to the truth. Do you know what that means? Jesus Christ has come so that you would know not what truth is, but who truth is. There is a way for you to be set free from all of the lies that you keep submitting to, that you feel like you're in bondage to. That's why Christ has come. He has come to bear witness to the truth, not just so that you would have more information, but total life change, to believe it, to be saved by it, and then to live for it. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I, 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 I understand you may be thinking to yourself, you know what, this is the problem with Christianity because it's a group of people who claim to have the truth, they have the corner on truth. 
And if we were in a conversation, you may say to me, Pastor, I appreciate what you're saying, but that is really true for you. And when you insist that other people believe that truth, you are being intolerant and inconsiderate of others and potentially being judgmental. And that is an unkind posture to have towards others. And if that's your perspective, while I respect that perspective, I disagree with that perspective. And I would, just con- I would ask you to consider this. Your claim that there can be no universal truth is indeed a claim of universal truth. And your concern that a claim that universal truth exists could lead to some being judgmental and dismissive can also happen if you claim there is no truth. And for any who does claim there is an objective truth, you may likewise run the risk of being judgmental and dismissive. And so at the end of the day, what wins the day isn't who can out-argue one another about what is truth. And truth isn't truth merely because we like it or merely because it's easy to follow. No, truth is truth only as it originates to God himself. And so what wins the day is not who can argue better, who has the better perspective. What wins the day is what has God said. And we believe that God has spoken in and through his word. And if that is something that you have questions about, it would be the joy of any Christian in here to talk to you further about that. And so I invite you, even now, as God speaks through his word, to turn from your sin and to believe. That same impulse that Adam and Eve had to question the truth and then to reject the truth, you and I have. That's what we're hardwired, born with. And that may sound like it's just a personal problem that's going to affect how we live for however many years we're given, but there's something greater at stake. There's a holy God, I said, from cover to cover, eternity past to eternity future, that's worthy of every bit of worship of every one of his creations. And that means that if you go through this life and you you spur the God who's worthy of your worship and you deny him what he's deserving of, you will give an account uh, for that. And you say, but Justin, I'm not even trying to stand before a God if he's indeed this holy figure who's going to judge me for every wrong that I've done. And there is truth to God's holiness. We will give an account for what we have done. And there's not a person in this room who would say, I'm ready to stand before him based on my track record. And in great mercy, Jesus has come to bear witness to the truth, but also to provide for us a way in which we can lay hold of this truth, not experiencing it in agony because we're objects of God's wrath, but experiencing it in grace and mercy because we've been adopted because of his love. And there's a way you and I get in on that. And that's turning from our sin 
and trusting in the work of Jesus to be sufficient for us. His sinless life is exactly the record that we, that we need. His death on the cross, absorbing God's wrath, is exactly the death that we deserve because of our sin. It's the right and just reward and punishment for sin. And Jesus absorbed that for all who would turn and trust in him. And three days later, he rose from the dead, guaranteeing and promising that all who trust in him will be raised to newness of life. And all of the glories of that eternity future, all who are in Christ get in on that. And so the invitation this Advent as we wait, this Christmas as we celebrate, is that there is a way to be made right with this God. And it's by the coming and the living and the dying and the resurrecting of this good King. If you're not a Christian, turn from your sin. And trust in the work of Jesus alone. And I love what he says. He continues in verse 37. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so Christian, by God's grace, you don't get over the gospel and say, now what next? You keep going back to the gospel because it reminds you of your need. It reminds you of God's gracious provision. It ought to remind you that just as he provided for you at your greatest need, whatever it is you're facing this Christmas season, that's not too far gone for him. The same grace that brought you in will be the grace that gets you home. And so what do we do? We listen to him. The world is seeking to disciple us, thinking this is what truth is. But those who belong to this good king, we listen to him. I, I, I think about this and I think, I, I think our students potentially feel this more than anyone else. And so if you're a student, I just, how many of your friends tempt you with things like if you just had these shoes, if you were just on this team, if you just were this, just in this crowd, then you would be happy, you would be accepted, you would be fulfilled. Or students, adults, you may even have coworkers who would think, Man, if you would just relax your standards about relationships and dating and sex, if you did, you would be more popular. You would be more fulfilled. If you would just stop being extreme, thinking everyone has to believe just like you in order to go to heaven, then you would get invited to more parties. You would be more liked around the office. If you just would stop insisting on truth, and friends, Jesus came to make clear to us the truth. And I love what Jesus says. Jesus says to Pilate, my servants, they don't wage war the way the world does. And so just a reminder, your great hope, Christian, is not who's in office. We don't wage war the way the world does. That doesn't mean that it doesn't matter who's in office, but that's not where your hope lies. 
Your hope doesn't lie in the greatest next social cause being taken up. No, your hope lies in adhering and abiding in the truth. The world is seeking to deliver and give you empty promises over and over and over again. And Jesus just says, listen to me. I would just encourage you this week to read Mark chapter 9, the Mount of Transfiguration. Just read what this small group of disciples were able to behold and then listen to God say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, to testify to the truth. We do that by capturing people's hearts with the truth of the gospel. I was helped by listening to a pastor talk about this, and he said, do you know how slavery came to be eradicated just off the law books? It was because people labored for years trying to give people a better vision of God's, of God's design for humanity. And I just think, Man, that's what we want to do. We want to show people a more compelling vision of God's, God's good reign. I think of this in our culture today with the impulse of same-sex marriage. Long before this ever became a law, the media and other forms and other means were making this seem normal and good. And it's just that how, do, how does change happen? Our hope isn't merely that laws are passed. And again, sometimes standing for the truth will lead us to advocate that way. But that's not our hope. Our hope is to stand for truth. And long before we ever see laws enacted, we see the culture, we see Christians helping give a different vision of what's good and right. And Christians, that's what we are to do. Bear witness to the truth. Help people to see that God's way is good and beautiful and right. And you say, you may, you may be thinking, I don't want to do, I don't want to be that guy in the office. Like, I don't, I don't want to have no friends on my street. I just want to remind you, this isn't home. The letter to first, uh, first, Peter's first letter. This is not our home. We are exiles awaiting this unshakable kingdom that is to come. And then the last question that Pilate asks is, what is truth? Verse 38. There is truth. Truth that comes from outside of us and gives meaning to us. The world doesn't make this truth. It doesn't shape this truth. It doesn't change this truth. It is the truth for a reason. It's not a truth for you and it's not a truth for me, but the truth is for all of us. It's absolute. It's unchanging. And so as Pilate answers this question and sort of just Jesus has offered him these truths, Pilate just sort of mutters, huh, what is truth? And he walks out of the room. And I think Pilate walking out in some ways puts you and I in the room left to give the answer. 
So who is Jesus? Is he a king? And if he's a king, then what's he worthy of? And what kind of king is he? And what is truth? Jesus is truth. And Jesus sets us free. Bringing us back to God, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. How in the world do we know what truth is? Listen to Jesus. And if this is not something that you've considered, it would be our joy to give you a copy of the Bible and just encourage you over the next couple of weeks, just go read these gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You have to read all of them. Just read one. Start with Mark. Start with John. And just listen to, who Je- listen to what Jesus says and weigh his claims. Consider his words. Have conversations with others. Have conversations with Christians about what you don't understand or what you don't agree with. But what ends up happening, you may not be changed the first time you read the word. But if you will give yourself to listening weeks, months, years regularly to his voice, you will begin to be shaped by truth. You will not be swerved by false truths or opportunities to deny the truth. Listen to him. And so I plead with you this Christmas that we would just realize how much is at stake when Jesus says, I have come to bring truth. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Jesus was not born to keep secret the truth of God. He was born and came into the world to bear witness to it. And so friends, let's take up that cause as his followers and say yes and amen. We too will give ourselves to bearing witness to this truth. And the best way to begin is not to create a list of everybody you want to share with. The best way to begin is for yourself to worship more vigorously, earnestly, fervently the one who is truth.